Thank you for listening to a podcast of Rock Church. For more information on sermons and events, connect with us online at rockchurchnow.com or search Rock Church Now in the App Store. Hey, good morning. How are you? Yeah, good. There's a lot of excitement in the house. And that's great. Hey, I'm just thrilled to be here. My wife is here with me today. You know what? I've known your pastor for probably 20 years. And I'm sad that he's not here. I saw him last night. But what I will tell you is this. Pastor Angelo may not be in the room, but he's in the room. When I see how you worship Jesus, I see Angelo. When I see how you love one another, I see him. When I see how you serve, I see him. The good news, the gospel, and the good news of the Bible is that every seed reproduces after its own kind. In a world of plastic, your pastor is the real thing. And you should be thrilled about that. And yesterday, the the banquet was wonderful. The food was outstanding. The missionaries were great. The guest speaker was probably the best I've ever heard. (laughs) But it was fun, and it's been a delight this weekend to be with you. My wife is here with me, and often when I travel, we don't get that privilege, but we're so close to our home. I think we're about an hour and eight minutes away, and it's just so great that she can travel with me. She is a very successful author. In fact, she's given us a series of three books that the Christian world has embraced enthusiastically. Thomas Trask, who was our superintendent of St. God, wrote a wonderful Uh, blurb just to say how great these books are. This is her first book. It's called Hillbrook, The New Beginning. It's a fiction, a novel about a church, specifically a family, a pastor who's struggling in the ministry and he receives the baptism of the Holy Ghost and it changes his church and his community in a profound way. The second book is on healing, same characters, but God comes through with a divine healing that just impacts the community. The third book is a rewrite, called Rewrite, and God's Rewrite, and it's about adoption and foster families. You're going to love these books. Her fourth book that just was published recently is called <clears throat> Drake's, where is it, Bev? I'll make sure I have it here. Tori's Drake's Journals. If you're in a blended family, fight to get this book. Because blended families, even in the Christian circles, are very difficult to negotiate. And this book is going to help you immensely. It's a story that unfolds with real-life situations. You're going to love it. The first three books are $30 if you buy them as a set. And then the last book is $13 by itself. But here's a book. My friend David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson. Anybody in the house ever heard of David Wilkerson? Wilkerson was the, the person God used to give birth to Life Challenge or Teen Challenge. David, I believe, before he passed away, you could declare him to be a prophet, an apostle, whatever you want to call him. I spent three days with him. They were sensational days, but the longest three days I've ever done because David sets the bar really high. This is his biography. If you want to know how a person with limited skills and limited abilities can be used in a supernatural, powerful way under the unction of the Holy Ghost, you have to read this biography. The problem with it is it's $22.95. So here's the good news. If you buy the first three books of my wife for 30, we will give you the David Wilkerson book free, as supplies last, as they say. 
So make sure you take advantage of this. Hey, take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel 23. I shared in the first service that this may make you feel uncomfortable with your guest speaker, but I'm not one of those people that God often speaks to. You've met people that God speaks to all the time. You talk to them, oh, God told me on the way to church. God told me when I got to church. God told me during church. God told me after church. It seems all God does is speak to them. And yet in my world, God doesn't often do that. I love his word, and through the sweetness of his word, he speaks to me. Through the presence of his spirit, he speaks. But very seldom in my life does God whisper things to me that I clearly, distinctively know it's him. But before church started today, as we walked in prayer, I felt the whisper of the Holy Spirit, and you can be the judge. And here's what I felt the Spirit said to me for Rock Church. If you continue to focus in pursuing a missionary God, In the next seven years, God will meet your young people in a way that he's never met with them at these altars, and he will lay their hand on their shoulders, and they will be called into the mission field. And you will become ascending church like you've never been before. The first century church measured its success not by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. Your greatest days will not be on display by the number of seats in this auditorium. It will be on display by the number of young people that are sent to serve God to fulfill the great commission around the world. That's your decision as you continue to pursue a living God and a missionary God. Take a look, if you will, at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men of David. David is the greatest king in Israel's history. He recognizes that his days are coming to a close. He does something that each and every one of us need to learn to do. He closes his eyes and begins to reflect. He reviews how God brought him to the fields where he was a shepherd at at the household of his father Jesse to the throne of Israel. He watched in amazement as he reviewed his life and saw the great things that were accomplished. But David is quick to acknowledge that the success of his rule and his reign was not solely due to David, but that God had given him mighty men. And then he's quick to acknowledge them, lest anyone in Israel assume that the success of Israel was solely on the shoulders of David. Then jump down, if you will, to verse 11. David is naming the mighty men, and after him was Shaman, the son of Agi. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defending it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory that day. If you underline in your Bible, underscore in your thoughts, so the Lord brought about a great victory that day. David had the responsibility to ensure that the nation of Israel would have plenty of food. To do so, he would take parcels of land, and he would, in fact, dedicate them to certain crops. But he also knew that his enemies that surrounded him, the Hittites, 
the Jebusites, the Philistines, would grow hungry and at harvest time they would turn their forces to reap the harvest that Israel had planted. So David was wise enough not only to plant the fields, he insistently made sure that there were troops available to watch over the fields at harvest. And imagine if you were selected. David said, there's a bean field, it's uh, north of town. Uh, I need some good men. Shaman says, uh, I can do this. Take as many men as you want. And Shaman picks people out of the tribes and says, you come with me, you bring your weapon. We're going to protect the bean field. It's a pretty good gig. First night you get there, there's nothing but beans. They're not quite ready for harvest, but it's getting close. And you tell yourself, this isn't bad. I'm away from the wife and kids for a few days. Sit around the campfire with a 12-string playing John Denver songs. It couldn't get much better than this. Second day you get up and somebody's already got breakfast ready for you. You walk through the bean field to make sure that the birds aren't seeking too much. And life is wonderful until about the fourth or fifth day. You wake up and you come out of your tent. You look up and, oh my. What, <clears throat> what is that on the hill? I, I think those are Philistines. What are they looking at? They're looking at this crop of beans. Those warriors want these beans. And I don't know how it happened. But one of the Israelites that had been sent to watch over that field excused himself and left. And once he left, he left the path that the rest could follow. And all of a sudden, Shaman is finding himself abandoned by his fellow brothers who were there to protect the field. And now he's by himself, and the Philistines are moving down, and they encircle him. <clears throat> now listen, if anybody has a right to flee, it's Shaman. Uh, he could have tucked his sword in his, his, his side or his, in his belt. He could have run back to David, and he would have said this, Listen, I stayed longer than anyone else. They all abandoned me, and, and I stayed until I was the only one there, but I had to come. And I don't know if anybody would have looked at him with a critical eye, but not Shaman. It's true, they abandoned him. It's true, he stands alone. It's true, it's just a bean field. But he had been commissioned by the king of Israel to protect that field, and he would give his life if he had to, to protect that field. So he goes to the middle of the field and he pulls out a sword. The Philistines find it humorous. One man against a small army. But what they didn't know is that it was one man who was faithful to one powerful God. And he was going to stand in the middle of the field. And that day, and that day God brought a miracle because of the obedience of one man to stand when no one else would stand. And he fought when no one else would fight. And I want to speak today specifically, I know this is unfair, I want to speak to the 70 students who just got home. If you're one of the students that were gone, would you just wave or make a sound, I can hear you? Okay, I'm going to turn my back, I don't know, I'm not going to do that. You're over here and you're over here. If you're in this room, I want to speak to you, but specifically to them and to the young people in this room about learning to stand. 
in obedience to the command of the Lord. Five times in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, before his ascension, Jesus spoke of the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It was never meant to be a suggestion, it is a command. And we need courageous young men and women who are willing to stand in a place of darkness where nowhere else will stand. Several years ago when we were in the Philippines, the Lord was blessing in so many ways. I talked this morning about the feeding program. I'll share a different thing this, in this service. The eighth wealthiest man in Great Britain happened to be an Assembly of God Pentecostal. He was frustrated with the lack of effort of the European Assembly of God missions program. So using his own money, he decided to start an outreach in Asia Pacific. My boss contacted me and asked me if I would be one of the people that he would work with. I said, I would be glad to. When I tell you he was wealthy, he was very wealthy. He met with us and said, my goal is to start churches, to work with young pastors, to groom them and to help them. We set out a plan that the following would be done. We would contact seven of our districts and the Assemblies of God, they would select one or two young men and women who would dedicate themselves to one year of service in a particular location. We would go ahead of them and rent a small facility which would become their church. And then in return, they would come for a four-night meeting in which I was one of the instructors to motivate them to go out to the fields that are white in the harvest and be a pastor. They had had some biblical training, but not a lot. So these young people gathered. and they, You have to understand, in the Philippines, we have 91 languages. We have 710 islands that people live on. So when they came together, we recognized that there was one particular young man there who spoke Warai Warai. We spoke Ilongo, others spoke Cebuano. But Warai Warai was a, a very difficult language to learn. He spoke it fluently. It was his first language. He also had a heart for Jesus. And in those four days, we met, we poured ourselves into all of them, but particularly I watched him. I watched him worship. I watched him cry. I watched him surrender himself to the Lord. We were so excited because my staff and I had just recently returned from the island he would be working on where he would start his church in Warai Warai, and we were excited. It wasn't much of a building, but it was at least a building. So the last night we commissioned them, and I wish you could have seen it. These students came forward. We laid hands on them. We prayed. We commissioned them. They were so excited, and they knew that that was on a Friday. They knew that on Sunday they would be in their own makeshift building by themselves preaching. Service was over. People were leaving. And the young man that spoke war I war, I came up to me, and he said, Pastor, I can't thank you enough for what we've encountered the last four days. It's changed my life. And I said to him, we're so excited that you're going to go. And then he looked at me and he said, I can't go. I said, what, 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 why can't you go? He said, I can't do it. I'm too afraid. I said, what are you afraid of? And he hung his head and said, nearly everything. I'm not as smart as the other students. I know that. I'm not as gifted. I don't have their abilities. I can't do this. And he hung his head down, and I reached out and grabbed his hand, and he looked up at me, and I said, Well, I'm possible, Sadias. 
Nothing is impossible with God. And he looked at me and I said it again slowly. Nothing is impossible with God. And I squeezed his hand and I waited for him. And tears came down his cheeks and he said, I'll do it. I'll go. And as he walked away, I asked the Holy Ghost, please, please help him. Lord, I can't be there this Sunday, but please help him. Saturday night, as I went to bed, my mind was on him, and I thought, oh, Jesus, what's going to happen in the morning? When he shows up, what's going to happen? Lord, help him. Sunday morning, I could hardly even go to our church. I mean, I was just broken. I just, God, please help him. I thought of him. Monday morning, I told my secretary, please get a hold of him. And it takes probably 20 minutes to go from island to island by phone. She said, he's on line one. And before I picked up the phone, I said, Jesus, 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 help him. I said, hey, pastor, how are you? And the phone, he just exploded with joy. Great. I said, what happened? He said, I preached the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. I said, say what? He said, I preached the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. The anointing of God was so strong on me, my body shook, my voice shouted. I said, man, great. How many were there? He said, none. I said, you preached the greatest. I said, pastor, the greatest sermon ever preached, and no one was there. And then he said this, I can't wait till next week. Amen. Next week rolled around. <laughs> no one was there. He stood behind his pulpit and said, if you have your Bibles, and the voice was heard. It rolled out of him like thunder. He felt the anointing of God's presence. There was no fear in his life. About six minutes into his message, Back door opened and two elderly ladies walked in. They sat on the back row. And he said he stared at them and he heard his voice shift. The confidence that he had had just a few minutes before had vanished. The voice that rolled like thunder could hardly be heard now. He could feel that his breathing was erratic. He, he was gasping for air as he tried to preach. And he said, I was so ashamed and so embarrassed that I had nothing else to do, but I said, let's pray, close your eyes. He said, I, with their eyes closed, I wanted to run out the back. I didn't know what to do. But I'd been trained enough to know this. I just kept my eyes closed and said, if you want to know Jesus, come up here and stand. But he said, I couldn't open my eyes. I was too afraid. But when he finally opened his eyes, there was two old ladies standing up in front of him, weeping in the presence of God. He prayed with them. They were converted. The next week, they brought in a few more people. His voice still didn't roll like thunder. He still lacked confidence. But when he finally shut up and gave the altar call, more people were saved. This continued for months, and I talked to him on the phone. And he'd say, please come down here. You've got to see what God is doing. It's remarkable. It's amazing. So I decided to go down, but I didn't want him to know. The last thing I wanted him to know is that I was coming down. But the week before I went down, he called me on the phone. He said, our church is really growing. I said, yes, I know. He said, we have musicians now. I said, yes, I've heard. He said, we have a speaker system. I said, I understand you do. That's wonderful. He said, we also have a neighbor 
that's right next door. And he's absolutely crazy. And I said, what do you mean? He said he's angry that the church is so loud on Sunday and he's so close to the building. He came over and he put a pistol into my head. And he said, if I hear your music one more time, I will kill you. I will kill you as sure as the day is the day. And he said, Pastor, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? I said, what do you need? Can you send more money so that we can rent a different place? I said, I don't have any more money. He said, what should we do? And I told him, well, I impossible, Sadios. Nothing is impossible with God. The phone got quiet and he said, I'm not sure what to do, but the Lord will help me. He went over to his neighbor and said, I apologize for the loudness of the music. And he said, we cannot get into a new building right now because we don't have the funds. But as soon as we can, we will. We'll try to keep the music a little bit lower. I would be coming down actually in two weeks. The following week, he said the music started, and I thought, please, don't play it loud. <laughs> but he said, when the music was over, I started to preach, and I looked up, and it was my neighbor. Initially, I thought he was coming in maybe to kill me on a Sunday, but he sat in the back. And he said, when I gave the altar call, he was the first one to come up to the altar. He told me, he said, the man met with him, and I said, I led him to the Lord, and we met for fellowship that week, and he said, I noticed the church is so crowded. Why aren't you in another building? He said, we don't have the resources. And the man that had promised that he would kill him if the music was loud was now a Christian. He said, I have a business just a short distance away downtown. He said, I, I'll give you rental of that free for one year. And it was spacious. When I arrived shortly thereafter, that man became a board member really quick. And I said to him, I said, how do you feel about having a board member that carries a gun? And he said, we get things done now we could have never got done a year ago. When I went in to, and surprised him, I stood outside so I could look through the window. He didn't see me. The church was packed. <laughs> the music was loud. I listened to him preach. It wasn't very good. He seemed to pause. He loved certain islands to stand on, like um and a lot. It didn't flow like silk. It was rough and coarse. But I watched when he gave the altar call. I watched people come forward and give their heart to Jesus. I want you to hear me. Shaman, in the scripture we read, wasn't great because of his ability to fight. He was great because he was obedient to a God and to a king that had commissioned him for a task. Your success is not going to rest on your ability or your talent going to rest on your availability to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What God wants to do through your life can only be performed as you submit and surrender to his will and his purpose. 
you're looking at somebody who their entire life has been afraid of crowds. I'm an introvert. In a perfect world, I would be left alone. I get nervous in front of people. My first sermon that I preached was in a crowd of about 50 adults. They were very kind. <laughs> they, uh, they talk to you when you preach at that church. I like that. Come on, they would say. That's it. Uh-huh. Do it. My dad said, how long will your sermon be tonight? I was 16 years old. I said, I have about 43 minutes. He said, oh, that's pretty good for your first sermon. I said, well, trimmed it down a little bit. Got up to speak. My sermon lasted two minutes and 12 seconds. In that two minutes and 12 seconds, I heard three people say, help him, Jesus. Help him, Jesus. That night in that pulpit, I remember saying this in my heart. God, if you ever get me out of this situation, I will never preach again. My academic skills were so low, I played football, so I didn't really play, go to high school. I just uh, showed up in gym class, and I couldn't fail. Then I got saved my senior year. I went to a Bible college. They had to start an English course for three of us, myself and two guys from Life Challenge who were both heroin addicts. We didn't have a clue what a noun or a verb or a subject was. What am I saying? And the little bit that God has used my life to make an eternal difference. He's done so not because of my ability or my gifts or my talents. He's done so because the only thing I knew to do was to stand in the middle of the bean field and say, I've been commissioned by the King of Kings to do this. And I'm not going to run because I'm afraid. And I'm not afraid of failure. I just don't want to let him down. And God has done the impossible. And I think for those that are in this room, as you're charting the course of your life, you're wondering, what does God really have for me? The truth of the matter, I'm not sure. But I know this. Somewhere in your journey, you have to deal with the fact that we have been called to be a zealous goer a zealous sender, or disobedient. There is no option to turn away from the, the Great Commission. There are nations of the world that have no missionaries tonight because everybody's abandoned the bean field. It's too hard, it's too frightening, it's too scary, it could cost me my life. And what God is looking for is for somebody that says, I'll follow you wherever you lead me. And I will be faithful to the ends. When missionaries were first sent out of this country, and especially even the London Missionary Society in Great Britain, they used to pack their belongings in a homemade casket. They were called one-way missionaries. William Carey would be sent to India, and in India he would die and be buried in the very casket that carried his goods and his personal belongings when he went to India. People like Adoniram Judson, the first missionary out of the colonies, said goodbye to his family 
and went overseas to India, then Burma, to Miramar today, we would call it. He carried his own casket with him. He buried three of his children before he died. He buried his wife before he died. But he was being faithful. And to this day, the very Bible that people use in Burma or Miramar is the translation that Adoniram Judson gave them in the 1800s. He was faithful to walk to the middle of the bean field. So I ask you, are you willing to surrender your future, your goals, and your agenda to the care of God? Let me share this story, and then I'll invite Steve up. One of the, I, I enjoy Greek. And one reason I enjoy Greek is very few people know it, so I can say whatever I want, and everybody thinks I'm intelligent. There is a term in the New Testament speaking for meek, blessed are the meek. When you hear that term, you and I have a definition often that is associated with meekness that has nothing to do with the term that Jesus used. We think of meekness, we often think of an introvert, somebody who pushes away from the spotlight, stands in the shadows, just carefully does what they do. They're just meek people. They just don't need attention. Well, that may be true, but that's not the definition Jesus used. When Jesus uses the word meek, everyone, especially Greeks, knew what he meant. Because it's not a religious term, it's a horse racing term. Jesus is using a term that was used for horse racing? Yep. What's it mean? The horse that would run in, let's say, among ten horses, the horse that would win would always be entitled to be called the meekest of all horses. What do they mean by that? That meant that the horse that won responded to the reins that were held in the jockey's hand better than any of the other horses. So when the jockey turned left, or with the reins, the horse turned left. When the jockey spurred, it spurred it. When the jockey said, whoa, whoa, when the jockey said, go, go, it went. That horse was the meekest of all horses because it responded to the will of the jockey. The Bible says Moses was the meekest of all people. That doesn't mean he was shy because he had a stuttering problem. It means that he responded best as God held the reins of his life. When God said go, he went. When God said stop, he stopped. How do you, how do you remain to be successfully moving forward in your relationship with God? Give him the reins of your life and learn to respond to him immediately. You're pursuing a missionary God. You better learn to love what he loves. And you better learn to hate what he hates. Because Amos says, how can two walk together unless they agree? Pardon the English. He ain't changing. If I want intimacy with him, I have to change. That concludes this week's podcast. To stay up to date with all things Rock Church, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram as Rock Church MI.